Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the politics of music in Iran, how music was banned after the 1979 revolution, how the state later used music during the years of war between Iran and Iraq, and how music has transformed in the post-war era. And musicians and artists use this medium as a space for political and social debate. My guest today is Nahid Siamdust, an anthropologist and a visiting assistant professor at Harvard University. She was previously a journalist based in Iran and the Middle East for Time magazine, Der Spiegel, and Al Jazeera. Nahid, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nagar. Let's talk about Mohammad Reza Shajarian, this legendary Iranian singer who recently passed away. He had celebrity status for a musician who worked on classical Persian music. And we saw in his funeral and just basically the reception of people for him, the gathering, some of them even turned into protests because of his not only cultural and social, but also political significance and certain political stances that mm-hmm. he's taken uh, during his life. Talk about Shajarian, the importance of Mohammad Reza Shajarian and why he was such a significant cultural figure in Iran. Shajarian, Mohammad Reza Shajarian, Ustad Shajarian was just so important because nobody was quite, you know, like him. There was nobody else like him who from the very beginning of the revolution, I mean, he'd started his artistic activity uh, more than a decade before the revolution, but certainly as of the time of the revolution, he had been someone who'd been there as a sort of narrator of the history and story of the Iranian people and the revolution over the last four decades and more. And he had accompanied those through his music. So his music was really a response to the kinds of sentiments and the kind of uh, lives that uh, tumultuous years that people were going through. And through it all, Shajarian was there and he picked the verses from oftentimes from classical Persian poetry, but sometimes also from contemporary Mm-hmm. Persian poetry, he chose the verses very carefully to respond to the needs, to the social and political needs of the people. And in some ways, uh, you know, he really was somebody who unified people through this language that has deep roots in Iranian culture, it's Persian poetry, and yet he contemporized it. He really brought the significance of this poetry out for the modern day and uh, allowed for people to engage in this public in which they talked about all this stuff, mm-hmm. allowed for them to engage in this without really taking too many risks. Because at the end of the day, this is a celebrated heritage of the country and not, you know, it's not like some kind of oppositional discourse that was created yesterday. It's something that people of all backgrounds and political and social and religious strides appreciate. Mm-hmm. And um, let's also talk about his political significance, because we hear that from the top leaders of the Islamic Republic to important figures of the opposition and a range of um, people from all walks of life and political factions 
are mourning for Shajarian have issued statements for his death, but he wasn't really a friend of the Islamic Republic, at least in the past decade, with his famous um, political move, basically, in 2009, where he asked the state TV to stop airing his voice on, on state television and radio. Talk about that and the significance of 2009. You know, Shah Jarian, in the interviews that I had with him, he always insisted, because this is something that was a, really of great interest to me. Um, clearly, your work is political, but how is it political? And he would always say, I'm not a political person. My work is not political. And this is something that he'd stated to other people as well. My work is mardomi. So it's uh, mardom means the people. So it's kind of popular. But mardom also has connotation of mm-hmm. you know democracy uh, in the Persian language, right? Mardom salari, mardom dusti. And so... He would always say my message is a popular one. And I think that's really precisely what he was very clear. And also, I think, really quite right about that. That's what really allowed for such a wide variety of people to feel like they were, you know, engaged with his discourse um, because he wasn't of a political faction. So, for example, when you look at his work, you know, it's rooted in these universal messages, humane messages of of Persian uh, poetry. And so it's always about justice and freedom and the human condition. And these are quite universal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now that he's passed away, as you rightly pointed out, you've had everybody from uh, Banu Farah Pahlavi to, you know, Maryam uh, Rajavi of, uh, you know, the MKO to uh, Hassan Rouhani expressing their condolences. It's because he spoke about the human condition. And this is this was universal, not just among Iranians, but I think to the world at large. And something that I find quite regretful is that in America, you know, sitting in New York, so few people, I still see so few people know Muhammad Azashajari nor understand the significance of his figure for the Iranian public. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit unusual for a musician of a classical background, like classical Persian music, to reach such celebrity status as if he was a pop singer or, you know, like a movie star, basically. Mm -hmm. back to 1979 a little bit you touched upon that but we know that one of the first casualties of the 1979 uh, revolution was music Mm -hmm. but at the same time there were a range of revolutionary songs basically that started emerging in the years leading up to the revolution and even played during and after the revolution let's talk about the significance of music in the revolution and then the banning of music post-revolution. So if I can keep this discussion still relevant to Muhammad Azal Shajarian, uh, at the time of the revolution, he was a member of the Chavosh Cultural Institute that created some of the most 
unforgettable pieces of music and unparalleled both in their artistry and also in the power of their messages for the language, whether it was Shajarian's Tofangyam uh, Give Me My Gun So I Can Get Going, calling up people to really to arms to depose this tyrant uh, at the time this sentiment was very strong that Muhammad Reza Pahlavi was an anti-democratic tyrant who needed to be deposed mm-hmm. to, you know, Sepide, the dawn breaking over the rooftops of Iran. And so these were some very, very uh, memorable pieces that accompanied the revolution. And there were also, of course, music of other from other political sort of sentiments and backgrounds, especially the, you know, the left had very strong, a very strong tradition of music that accompanied the revolution. But once the revolutionaries, at least the Islamists, took over the, the trajectory of the revolution and took over the state institutions such as state media mm. um, and Khomeini obviously was the the undisputed leader of this revolution because of the Islamic nature of this revolution the question of music became uh, very much contested and uh, this is not because in the Quran there's something about the uh, impermissibility of music but because this is a cultural thing that has existed that there are questions about the permissibility of music and so it was more the people within those positions of power in these institutions and these many institutions including state radio and television they thought it was a problem and so they they right away banned most types of music mm-hmm. but also because you know the field of music when you look at pre-revolutionary iran and during the pahlavi era music played a very important role there was uh, i mean tehran was one of the empires of pop music in the world if you were to look around and and see that you know people from all over the world would come to iran to produce works together with iranian singers so this was a very strong mm-hmm. music happening in this you know late 60s and 70s of iran but also that was the precisely sort of the kind of music that the revolutionaries opposed right because it was a scene and a context western and yeah exactly where men and you know obviously that the way that the women singers of, of the scene were dressed the kinds of songs that they said the kind of dancing and socialization that that kind of music uh facilitated so all of that is something they uh, they opposed mm-hmm. and so when we talk about you know why is shajarian so important there's several factors and one of them is that early on one kind of music that wasn't directly opposed by the Islamists was Persian classical music because of the heritage and the mm-hmm. also because of the revolutionary credential and capital that Persian classical music had precisely because of the kinds of works that we see in Chavosh. And so this type of music was allowed to continue, although we... I'm, I always want to be very cautious to say that it's not like, you know, Shajarian and his companions in Persian classical music, the Chavushis and Arafis and so on, it's not like they they got a free sort of carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Music was constricted across the board, and this affected these musicians as well. And in fact, Shajarian, you know, went silent for about three years because of the kinds of restrictions that were placed on music. But at the same time, he was one of the only people throughout that first revol- post-revolutionary decade of the 80s who outside of state media, outside of war music, produced specifically by state institutions created works that offered an alternative narrative. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in 1985 with his Bidad, uh, an album that translated means Injustice, it was sort of the first piece of music to raise the question of, and this is, we have to remember, this is under conditions of extreme repression, 
uh, in a post-revolutionary state uh, at war, uh, trying to consolidate still its own government, uh, you had Shah Jahan asking, "What happened to kindness? What happened to the what happened to the princess? What happened to all that goodness that we had? What happened to the promises?" Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a double entendre in the way that he sings the the song. You know, Shahriyaran, Rajeshot Shahriyaran, the city of companions versus Shahriyaran, which means the kings, the city of kings. So. He was really assaulted for that by Parliament at the time, who went up in arms saying, "We have people, young men, dying at the war front, and you know Shajarian singing about kings." Mm-hmm. But it was really a question that he he posed, and that was one of the records, one of his records that sold, uh, you know, sort of was completely sold out in the market and had to kept being reproduced. It's interesting that you mention this. There's this great documentary called Bazm Raz by Vahid Hosseini, who talks about some of the very issues that you just mentioned of the limitations even put on Persian classical music post-revolution. Now let's talk about the war era, the 1980s, the almost eight-year-long war between Iran and Iraq, very devastating. Mm-hmm. And music played an important role mm-hmm. during that war. Let's talk about basically the soundtrack of the Iran-Iraq war on the Iranian side and how this connect to the post-revolutionary ban on music. Mm-hmm. So initially, people who, you know, at state television and radio they believe that rhythmical music was problematic. So what you see very early on is a lot of choral music, a lot of march music, music quite different from the kind of music that had been on the air prior to the revolution. So that's that's sort of the soundtrack initially of of the war. But then what happens is that uh, Murtaza Mutahari, one of Khomeini's most sort of dear protégés, mm-hmm. is assassinated. And some people at state radio produce a piece and present it to Khomeini and say it's quite rhythmical. And in fact, passages of uh, the song are grafted from an old Haide song of the pre-revolutionary pop diva Haide. And Khomeini listens to it and says, um, I don't cry much, but I cried when I heard the song. So, and if you continue making music like this, I will support you. And so what happens with that statement is that Khomeini basically says, if you produce committed, a committed type of music, if it's written for, for example, Ayatollah Mutahari, um, it's permissible. And from that point onward, this is actually quite early on in a sort of late 1980, the music becomes more rhythmical. There's there, you know, it departs from the very uh, super austere, you know, choral and um, sort of non-instrumental kind of music previously broadcast. Mm-hmm. But there's also this other very rich heritage that Iran has, right? Nohehuni, the religious kind of uh, eulogizing that has been practiced for centuries in Iran. And so that other tradition also provided a very strong uh, input into the music that was created during the time of the war. So from Kovetipu to Ahangaran, um, these were Nohehuns, uh, religious eulogizers who mm-hmm. adapted the content of their eulogies to the war. And oftentimes the nohes that they would create were very much sort of drawn from folkloric rhythms and melodies and, um, you know, adapted to the new context. So they had roots uh, among the people because they were, let's say, like a Lori folklore song or Azari or Kurdish or 
you know, Iran has this very rich patchwork of regional music. Um, and they drew on those coming from these different regions and created this body of work for this for the war that was um, that was based in this uh, sort of religious eulogizing. So that's another very important soundtrack to the war that you get that you got at the time. And, you know, since we did talk about we've been, you know, started talking about Shajarian, the Chavushis and uh, Shaydan, Arif and all these other Persian classical music groups also continued mm -hmm. creating incredible works uh, in commemoration of the war heroes and in commemoration of the the homeland and they just were not aired um, and given the kind of attention from state media as the music of for example that was produced within state television and uh, radio or the Nohe Khuni talk about the post-war era because despite the bans on music and then some of this transformation of how the state viewed music or even used music for its own propaganda we then see slowly start seeing this movement of you know a newer generation of musicians and the music basically providing a venue for a political space, even for for sort of uh, resistance to some of the norms that were not necessarily even political, sometimes social and based in Iranian tradition, religious and all of that. Let's talk about that era. And I want to first encourage everyone to read your book about all of this, the soundtrack of the revolution, the politics of music in Iran. Um, in which you explain in great detail a lot of these transformations in the different eras of Iranian music post-revolution. But let's talk about uh, the post-war era and how music started providing these political and social venues. Yeah, so once the war was over, spaces slowly opened up. This was in part because of an edict by Khomeini himself where somebody put an estefta, which is kind of a you know, question about... Um, sort of a religious about jurisprudence to him mm -hmm. and said the question was um, is it permissible to sell musical instruments and Khomeini said yes to this and there were also a series of other questions and so with this series of questions that were put to Khomeini and which he responded to in 1988 music all of a sudden had a sort of air of permissibility because the imam himself had said yes to a certain number of questions about music mm -hmm. and from that point onward Really, um, the state, uh, the Ministry of Culture within the different provinces started having its own sort of, you know, branches of uh, teaching music to uh, for for young people and so on. And slowly, bit by bit, you know, more and more concerts were allowed. And in this post-revolutionary era, there was a cadre of uh, young musicians who had graduated from the first class of the Music Academy, which also restarted after the war. And these graduates came out and really were making music for as a sort of profession for their livelihood. These weren't ideological people. They just wanted to sort of make music. Mm -hmm. And this is really the first generation of um, 
pop musicians after the revolution, people like Khashar um, Etemadi, Ali Reza Assar. You know, a bit later, you have people, you know, the group, for example, Aryan, and, and they become huge hits because they're able to create a pop music that really comes from within the circumstances and conditions of post-revolutionary Iran from within the country. People had, of course, continued listening to music coming from Tehran Jalis, as Los Angeles is known because of the mm-hmm. large number of musicians who left Iran after the revolution and you know, set up their lives in Los Angeles. So all of that music kept coming in from Los Angeles as well. You had VHS tapes and cassette tapes coming from abroad. But most of that music tended to be happy, joyous music that still definitely gave a lifeline to people under severe conditions of war and loss, Mm -hmm. but they didn't come from within the internal context. And so once these pop musicians in the mid-90s started making this music, it created this huge field where people were very eager to attend concerts, to buy their work, and to partake in their very own nationally created musical discourse. And pop music was greenlighted. That's another sort of uh, story about how pop music became to be greenlighted. But it had to do with a circulation of people going through these different governmental offices that had the authority to allow for pop music. And These uh, young people tried for many, many years to actually get permits and were told repeatedly that their music was too reminiscent of Los Angeles music and were rejected Mm -hmm. in their in their in their attempts to seek permits. But eventually there was somebody, uh, you know, who said it's fine. This is this is music coming from our own country. I argue in my book that there's the voice of Hashayar Etemadi that's very, very similar to the voice of Daryush Erbali from the previous, um, you know, from pre-revolutionary Iran. Daryush Erbali happened to be regarded as a political singer, as somebody who even the revolutionaries mm-hmm. really appreciated. So he belonged to that pre you know, revolutionary era, but his music was very critical of the Shah, of the, you know, policies of the Shah, and he had landed in jail under the Shah. And so he was a voice that was respected and permissible. So when this young man in sort of post-revolutionary Iran comes of age and sings these songs that are reminiscent of the voice of Daryush, there's somebody in state television who says, actually, you know what, this is not so problematic because... Uh, this is coming from inside our own country. So what that we banned, you know, all this pop music for nearly two decades. This is a different kind of pop music. It's coming from within. And uh, and he greenlighted it. I remember immediately after the war, when for the first time you would start seeing people actually carrying instruments on the street in Iran. And uh, but it still had to have this kind of a sticker that showed that you had a permit from the Ministry of Culture, including the first piano I had inside my own house. We still kept that uh, sticker for years in fear that they might eventually come and search the houses and you would have this kind of proof that this is this is sanctioned by the state, basically. Mm. I'm yeah. glad you brought up the Tehran Jalis, um 
scene. I want to talk about that and then also later talk about diaspora music now. But let's start with Terangelis. There's this long list of um, mostly pop musicians, some political, like you mentioned, Dariush, um, who had to leave Iran. They basically fled Iran after the revolution and they set up this um, center, Tehrangelis or Los Angeles, because of so many Iranians there being called Tehrangelis, for music outside of Iran uh, in Persian that would then be smuggled back into Iran. And Iranians listened to them for years. And it was probably the only source of that kind of pop music for years until those uh, new generation of singers, like you said, uh, emerged inside Iran and were permitted to sing. Let's talk about that scene a little bit. And then later on, we can talk about today's diaspora music. I mean, you know, you had these giants of Persian or Iranian pop music who had left the country and, you know, in conditions of exile and with great nostalgia, producing album after album and in some ways really communicating with their compatriots back in Iran through their music, so sharing their grief. Mm. And I'm saying that because when you look at the music, the music, for the most part, I think it's in part because it was just what they practiced prior to the revolution, sort of continues in the same vein. So it's it's sort of happy, joyous, fast kind of pop music. But then when you listen to some of the lyrics, you realize, wow, these are some really sad lyrics, even with like Shahram Shapare, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Iranians really just had such a void of music in post-revolutionary Iran that anything that came from Los Angeles, they were using that lifeline. They were using that to reminisce and connect with, you know, their lives of just a few years prior and also with their loved ones because, uh, you know, the conditions of exile for these musicians and the conditions of war at home um, also included conditions of family separation. I feel like that's something that, you know, we don't often talk about enough, but the percentage of Iranian families who in subsequent decades, but already from early on, have been separated from each other, right, of people emigrating, um, has been just immense. And so through this music really keeping a unite, as some kind of, you know, a, a, a cultural language that they all shared, and this music was widely consumed um, at parties in, you know, in, in Tehran and, and Los Angeles alike. So let's fast forward uh, a little further. You talked about those pop musicians that started to emerge in Iran. Then we had also the introduction of internet, which provided an alternative um, tool, basically, to musicians, both in Iran and also some in the diaspora, to um, have a way to share their products. Let's talk about the years of 2009, because that was another important political event where Again, music emerged. We can call it a soundtrack of 2009. We have a long list of songs um, that were energized by the events of 2009 and then the subsequent um, 
leaving of some of those musicians from Iran because of the 2009 uh, Green Movement. Talk about that era and some of the music and musicians that were most prominent in that time. Yeah, I think you're really right to point to the role of the internet because that, of course, changed the game completely in Iran itself, right? Prior to that, if any musician wanted to be heard, they had to get a permit from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance in order from Ershad in order to be able to publish their work. And it was a very archaic and com- super complicated process. I mean, you basically had to produce an entire album with the artwork, get a permit, And then you would produce the actual album. So you kind of had to present the whole thing to them step by step Mm -hmm. and then get a permit before you could produce the real thing. And, you know, it was an arduous task that, uh, you know, the majority of people couldn't even financially afford, let alone afford to do with their time. And so once the Internet came along, it really changed the game. People were able to put their music online. And, you know, the Tehran Avenue music contest of the sort of early 2000s is famous for having revealed even to musicians themselves uh, the large numbers of groups out there. Uh, who were making music over the last, you know, these were kids who were coming of age during the revolution. So we're talking about kids who are, you know, teenagers in their 20s, who've over the last five, six years prior to sort of the coming of the internet in Iran had practiced their music in garages and basements uh, all over Iran. And so this really came to the fore and there was an alternative music scene that you could talk about, which in the West has often been called an underground mm-hmm. music scene. And I think in part, you know, sure, rightly so, even just structurally, it this often happened in the basements. And so when the Green Revolution of um, or the Green uh, Movement of 2009 happened, subsequent to the contested elections of 2009, you already had a repertoire that and, and practice of this kind of alternative music for mm-hmm. at least a decade, right? You had it for about a decade. And some of these musicians really came to the fore at the time. So for example, you know, Rappe Farsi with Hichkas, mm-hmm. whose song Yeruza Khubmiyad is one of the most memorable songs of that uh, period. Mohsen Namju certainly was someone who through the internet became uh, sort of exploded onto the music scene in the 2000s in Iran. And at the time of the Green Uprising happened to be outside of Iran because of uh you know, because of a court case against him. And so he published several pieces, um, including, by the way, Morga Sahar, sort of pointing to the to the song that Shajarian had popularized since the late 90s in Iran. Um, and so you had these musicians coming to the fore, many of them, some of them even anonymous, and some of them still sort of inside Iran and really going to these protests and picking up certain slogans and mm-hmm. protests, you know, poetry that was spread throughout at the time and referencing certain political elements such as, for example, Ahmadinejad's speech calling protesters Khasakhashak, you know, with Ahmadinejad Pei saying in Khasakhashak toi, um, you know, turning the phrase back to Ahmadinejad saying this dust and dirt, this riffraff you're talking about, that's you, it's not us. Um, and of course, Shajarian himself would lay down your gun, Tofanyat Razamin Begzar, you know, 30 years into the revolution, here was Shajarian at the time of the revolution. He'd been a young man who taken up by the wave of the revolution and speaking for the people, which is what he's done throughout his musical career. Um, 
you know, he had asked、mm. people to get going, get underway because people are dying on the streets and you need to get going and do something for this. And 30 years later in 2009, he's saying, lay down your gun,、mm. come sit down, let's talk. Maybe the light of humanity will find a path in your heart. And so here he is saying, lay down your gun to the violence that was being meted out. Um, at these demonstrations against protesters. So, music really sort of ha- had its moment for sure、uh, 30 years after the revolution, again in 2009. And I think what's interesting is that 2009 was not represented in the music, even as a moment in time singular unto itself. It was presented as a moment in a, in a, in a long line of moments. For a century where people, Iranians, had been seeking to have freedom and an independent government. Let's talk about、um, the diaspora music scene today. Like you mentioned, after the Tehran Avenue Music Festival, the introduction of internet, a lot of this started inside Iran. But now some of those most prominent musicians have left, and it's no longer only Tehran Jalas. In fact,、mm-hmm. you see these musicians, these singers, based in various different places in Europe, in North America, and almost everywhere there's a large Iranian diaspora. Talk about this scene, this diaspora scene, some of their prominent voices and how they're flourishing basically outside of Iran, but with a following in the country. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's really interesting. Post 2009, many musicians did eventually leave Iran, many of the underground musicians, and have started to produce music that is now sort of feeding back into Iran because. Of course, what happened was that there's this sort of golden period where underground music could happen in Iran because the, you know, that, that scene wasn't as、um, securitized and wasn't being as monitored and、mm-hmm. you know, over sort of censored as it is now. Now you've had, you know, any moment somebody puts something, becomes a little more famous or puts a track or a clip online that really gets a lot of popularity, the intelligence and security apparatus. Is able to locate and you know locate them and、uh, ask them to stop doing what they're doing, and so it's no longer really as feasible to engage in the underground music scene in Iran because the whole internet and online world is now securitized and monitored. So that's no longer possible. And so some of these musicians who've left, for example, if we take Sasiman Khan, right,、mm-hmm. his songs are some of the most popular ones to come. Sort of onto the Iranian music scene, or if you look at a divisive figure, but still, if you look at, for example, Amir Tatalu,、mm-hmm. who has a huge fan base in Iran and has also left the country, or these these are sort of the you know the underground musicians who came to the fore because of the internet, and、um, and others still. You you also have a lot of other musicians, as you said, sort of outside of that sphere. For example, the Abjis, right, the Swedish Iranian sister duo act, who create some of the. Most beautiful,、uh, politically, socially conscious music out there、mm-hmm. in Persian. And then, of course, sort of, you know, huge figures like Gugush,、uh, the pop diva Gugush, who since having left Iran has been able to create songs and discourses 
about all kinds of things, political, but also, you know, about sexuality, just sort of talking about sort of mm-hmm. the promoting a more tolerant kind of discourse in her music. And all of this music is widely consumed in Iran. But, uh, but what's interesting is that that particular kind of underground music that we had in Iran, that whole field has completely changed. Um, so Nahid, in your book, you also talk about government supported music and certain musicians basically sanctioned by the state who work parallel to these um, rebel or more political um, artists. Let's talk about that a little bit, some of the important figures and how government sponsored music has transformed over the past in the recent years. Sure. So, you know, in the initial sort of first generation of pop musician in the 90s, you had musicians like um, Shadmir Aghili, who soon left the country because they found his music to be just not supportable, you know, by the Islamic Republic, but Assar and Hashar Etemadi and so on. And these people, they got permits to produce their kind of music. Later on, you had Ben Yamin, for example, and mm-hmm. I mean, so many other musicians now, I mean, in the dozens, right, with uh, like hundreds of concerts every year. And so this field of music and concerts is very vibrant in Iran. And, you know, the, the, the format of it has really changed. So, for example, early on, in the 90s, the music itself couldn't be too fast and rhythmical. And, you know, it could be, but not too much. And it certainly couldn't be dance music. But by the time you hit, you know, the 2000s, all of that kind of very fast music and even dance music is allowed in concerts. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the one red line that exists is still politics. So as long as the musicians don't make any open, direct, explicit political messages, um, their music was permitted. And of course, nothing that was too sort of sexual. But I have to say, even on that ground, mm-hmm. you know, the parameters were flexible. So whereas initially when Benjamin sang, um, you know, it's like it's, it's a track where you could kind of imagine that he's singing about the Messiah, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a song about Entezar, about the expectation of the Messiah to appear. By the time a decade later, he's, he's singing his songs. He's singing he's explicitly about being interested in a woman who is uh, who would not be interested in him if she knew that he's really in love with her. Um, the, the you know the insinuation being that this is a sort of lighter kind of love affair, perhaps a more physical one, not so much you know rooted in mm. you know sublime feelings of love and all of that. So the parameters have really shifted a lot. I mean, you have super sort of fast dance music with some themes that push the boundaries on some levels, uh, but again, sort of that red line is drawn on politics and um, and uh, a lot of the music does you know, tend to be somewhat similar, a lot of, you know, repeated sort of passages of certain kinds of pop music that appear uh, across the board. But among the musicians who've been able to really create a fan following, there, 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 there are a few who really sort of stood out with music that is a little bit more unique or themes than songs that are a little bit more unique. Yeah, I know how the, like you're saying, the red lines have transformed over the years. I haven't visited Iran in about a decade. And sometimes I get surprised at hearing songs that are coming out of Iran and are permitted or have been performed with basically permission from the state. Mm -hmm. I mean, even including, you know, rock music and the kinds of music that we previously would have thought would not be permitted. I mean, there was a time during the first Rouhani government when 
even some of the underground musicians of prior years were getting permits to come above ground, so to speak, and give concerts. And um, so that was, uh, yeah, there, there, there certainly have been a lot of changes. Exactly. In the form of music, in the lyrics, and mm -hmm. the actual musicians and the artists who are behind it. Well, I, again, I want to encourage everyone to read your book, The Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, in which you um, go into great details about all of these topics. And I want to thank you for joining the Iran Podcast Night. Thank you so much, Nagarjan, for having me. That was Nahid Siamdus, an anthropologist and a visiting assistant professor at Harvard University and previously a journalist based in Iran and the Middle East for Time Magazine and Al Jazeera. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.